Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2017 AWP conference in Washington, D.C. The recording features Mimi Locke, Jennifer Linfer, Dave Eggers, and Rajas Vinny Bansali. You will now hear Dave Eggers provide introductions. Uh, yeah, uh, Mimi and I are going to sort of, we're all going to moderate each other. We're all friends, so, uh, um, and we're going to try to uh, engage uh, you guys as much as we can early on and uh, have a dialogue. Um, I want to, Voice of Witness is a nonprofit oral history uh, series uh, that started in 2004. Um, each of the 14 books we've published so far attempts to take an issue or historical moment and add to it nuance and complexity in hopes of edifying our audience and turning statistics back into humans. We do this through listening to those affected by human rights crises and publishing their narratives with their full participation. We aim to give their narratives a novelistic level of detail to best engage the reader and engender empathy. Um, I'm going to introduce our executive director, Mimi Locke, who you just met. Mimi is a writer and editor whose work builds on almost 20 years' experience in literary arts and education in the U.K., China, and the U.S. She is the co-founder and executive director of Voice of Witness and a recipient of the Smithsonian American Ingenuity Award for Social Progress. Can we thank Mimi for coming? I, uh... It's just a way to get us clapping early on, I think. Um... Next to her is Jennifer Lentford. Um, She is a Nebraska farm girl turned international aid worker. As creator of HowMatters.org, she is one of Foreign Policy Magazine's 100 Women to Follow on Twitter. She is the Director of Communications at IDEX and is currently co-editing a book on funding visionary grassroots leaders. Thank you, Jennifer. I'm, I'm uh, Dave. I'm one on the board of uh, uh, Voice of Witness, and uh, and I get to uh, cheer uh, Mimi on these days. Uh, and Mimi's going to introduce Lorena. Well, um, before we get to that, I just want to also mention that Dave is a co-founder of Voice of Witness, and he conceived of the book series. Um, and I just want to give a quick overview before we hear from some other um, uh, some excerpts from other voices in our book series, um, as well as a book series that uh, Dave just mentioned. We also have an education program. Um, and among the issues that we've covered, uh, some of which you can see represented here on this table, uh, we've, we've covered uh, issues abroad in Zimbabwe and in Sudan and Colombia, as well as here in the U.S. I think we'd all agree you don't have to look too far to, uh, to, to find a human rights crisis, uh, especially in this day and age. So um, uh, this book feels ever more timely, Patriot Acts, which is narratives from uh, post-9-11, uh, narratives of post-9-11 injustice. And we also have uh, compiled, one of the first books that I worked on was Underground America, a book, uh, book of stories from undocumented immigrants. And, um, and then we've also done books on Palestine and former residents of Chicago public housing. And um, I wanna, we want to just share, before we launch into the like, chatty part of, um, of this session, just wanted to share a couple more uh, excerpts from, uh, from the narrative. So I think we have someone, uh, a very nice uh, volunteer from the audience, who agreed to read um, Adama's story from Patriot Acts. Where's, where's Adama's reader? Thank you. Um, 
And um, as our reader is making her way to the stage, I want to tell you just a little bit of context about this narrator. So we interviewed Adama. She told us Adama was a 16-year-old Muslim girl living in Harlem. Her family originally from uh, Guinea. And the one morning uh, on March 24th, 2005, the FBI raided her home at dawn um, under, under completely unfounded suspicions of her being a suicide bomber. So um, the part that we're uh, entering her narrative right now is a moment where the, the raid is happening. What did I do? The morning of March 24th, 2005, my family and I were in the house, sleeping. Someone knocked on the door, and my mom woke up and went and opened it. Three men barged in. Sorry, these men barged in, waking us up. I always sleep with the blanket over my head. They pull the blanket off my head. I look up. I see a man. He said, you've got to get out. I'm like, what the hell? What's going on? I saw about 10 to 15 people in our apartment and right outside our door in the hallway. They were mostly men, but there were also two women. Some had FBI jackets and others were from the police department and the DHS. We were all forced out of the bed and told to sit in the living room. They were going through papers, throwing stuff around, yelling and talking to each other, then whispering. I heard them yelling at my mother in the background and my mom can't speak much English and they were pulling her into the kitchen, yelling at her, we're going to deport you and your whole family. This whole time I was thinking, what's going on? What are they talking about? I knew my dad had an issue with his papers, but I didn't think my mom did. They kept saying, we're going to send all of you back to your country. Then I saw my dad walking in, in handcuffs. They had gone to the mosque to get him. It was the scariest thing you ever could see. I had just never seen my father so powerless. He was always this guy whom you didn't mess with. If he said do it, you did it. He was just someone you didn't cross paths with. They took him to the kitchen, whispered something to him. He sat down looked at us. He said, everything's going to be fine. Don't worry. And then I knew nothing was fine. I knew something was wrong. They told him to tell us what was going on. He told us that they were going to arrest him and they were going to take him away. Thank you. Thank you, Molly. Molly, by the way, is the head of uh, the Telling Room. Do you guys know this nonprofit based out of Portland, Maine? It uh, gives the opportunities for adults from many walks of life, but many asylum seekers and refugees living in the Maine uh, area. Um, gives them a voice and publishes their work, and it's an incredible nonprofit that's grown beautifully over the years and um, doing parallel work. So please look up the Telling Room, and if you're ever in the neighborhood, uh, I'm sure they could use more volunteers too. Um, so thank you for doing that, Molly. 
Um, I want to, while we're on Adama's story, um, how many high school teachers are there here in the room? Anybody? Oh, all right. A lot of you guys. Um, so I had a class for uh, 11 years called the Best American Non-Required Reading, and it was high schoolers from all over the Bay Area. And we would read contemporary literature every week and then talk about it. And then at the end of the year, we would create an, an anthology um, of our favorite pieces from literary magazines and websites and uh, and books and uh, comics and everything in between. And the work that, that they were most compelled to and most moved by was oral history. And oral history is... Uh, I think the mo- one of the most teachable forms of literature. I think it's electrifying for students of uh, high school and on and, and up, high school and college. It can humanize a complex issue. It can move, I think, apathetic or disengaged students to action and even um, lives of uh, activism. Mm-hmm. And um, when we read Adama's story in our class, um, I'd never seen the kids so engaged because... They're 16 and 17. Adama's 17. She, they had been hearing about the war on terror for many years, um, but it hadn't been brought home to them and humanized and sort of see they couldn't see themselves in it necessarily. And, um, and here they had this 17-year-old speaking in their same voice, same age, same other shared experiences, but suddenly it became very real to them. And I'd never seen this class of 22 so uh, energized and thinking what they could do who they could write a letter to, how could they protest. And then a few weeks later, we read a narrative from uh, uh, Myanmar, and then they all wanted to go to Myanmar and uh, join uh, the resistance there. And um, so there's a, there's something very teachable about it, but there's something very sort of... Uh, uh, there's an awakening, I think, that happens through first-person narratives. I think high schoolers are drawn to nonfiction, they're drawn to first-person narratives, and they're drawn to stories from the contemporary world that sort of make that real to them. So for all those reasons, um, we're going to spend a lot of time pushing very hard for uh, the teaching of oral history uh, in, in classrooms, and, uh, and we'll be here to talk your ear off about it afterward, too. But uh, Yeah, you've actually accidentally walked into the oral history evangelist church, um, <laughs> and um, to piggyback off what uh, David just mentioned, one thing that it's just astounding to me is when we hear from uh, educators of all levels and all backgrounds who are using these books. So in the case of Patriot Acts, in the case of uh, this book and Invisible Hands, um, our book on human rights and the global economy, we hear from teachers who are teaching upper middle school level all the way through to um, a graduate level. Um, we recently heard that someone was teaching underground America in a law school at um, NYU Law and Stanford and Cornell. And so there's, it has loads, like so, so many different applications. So um, just out of interest, show of hands, is anyone teaching creative writing, fiction or nonfiction in the room? Okay. So seriously consider um, these uh, oral history, in particular voice witness oral histories, as a, as a way in which to craft first-person narratives, whether it's uh, you know within your fiction or non-fiction class. And a, a lot of the same, when we edit these stories as if they're short stories, you know, we stay faithful to the narrator's words. It's, I just want to um, reiterate the fact that all of these narratives are based off, uh, are drawn from um, first-person interviews. So one-on-one interviews and like reams and reams of transcripts condensed into um, like a succinct, uh, almost like a feature-length movie of someone's life. So, um, but many of the same principles of uh, literary editing apply to the editing and crafting of these stories. So um, the last um, excerpt I want to share 
from the series is from Underground America, which is everyone's been asking us about, everyone's been coming to our table today saying, oh, this is so important because this and this and um, you know, immigration, Islamophobia, that's just, as you know, they're just at the forefront of so many people's uh, minds right now. And, um, and these stories are more important than ever. And um, we have, uh, who's, our, who's our Lorena reader? Hi, Naomi? Hi, <laughs> Naomi and I met today. Hi. Um, so, um, uh, Naomi's going to read an excerpt from uh, Lorena's narrative from Underground America. And I just want to see a little bit about Lorena before we get into this uh, little excerpt from her story. Um, Lorena, we interviewed Lorena about 10 years ago when she was a college student. Um, she was a full time college student juggling that. Uh, that workload with a part-time job at a real estate office. Um, she, um, she was originally from Mexico. She crossed over into the U.S. when she was six years old with her mother and her brothers. And, um, and we're going to drop into a story at the point where she's crossing uh, the desert. I remember walking through the desert. It was my mom, my stepdad, my two younger brothers, and me. I was six, so my brothers were five and three. I was so hungry. That is something I don't ever wish on anybody, that kind of hunger. And the only thing I could think of was, if I'm hungry, then my brothers must be hungry. I started getting worried. We were literally in the middle of the desert. That night, we fell asleep in between some bushes. It was early in the morning, like six or seven o'clock when I woke up. We were in the middle of bushes on top of other bushes, so we were completely covered. It was all dry, so it was really noisy, and so nobody could move. I remember waking up, and I kind of jerked my foot to the side a little bit, so the bushes made a loud rustling noise, and there were actually INS agents on the other side of the bush. There were other people with us. I think it was seven or eight of us but they weren't family, so I don't remember who they were. I felt horrible. This was totally my fault, and I knew it, and I just could not live with myself. I remember my mother and stepfather getting their hands tied with those plastic cuffs. I wanted to kick the INS agents because I was thinking we're good people. People that get tied up are bad people. They walked us to the van, and they took us to a cement holding cell. It was a big room, and they were holding a lot of other people already. There was this lady with a baby, a brand new baby, like less than three months old on her back. And my mom was begging her for a little bit of Gerber that she had for her baby because we hadn't eaten or drank anything in I don't know how many days. At first, the lady didn't want to give us any because that's all she had for her baby. But then she did give us some. And I remember my mom feeling, feeding us that Gerber with her finger. That night, they let us go and they dropped us back across the border. Not even a day went by, and we tried again. Fortunately, the second time, we were successful. I remember walking through a canal, but there was no water. One of the coyotes was holding my hand, and he asked me if I was tired, if I wanted, if I wanted him to carry me. And I said, oh, no, I can do this. This is easy, I said. This is as easy as the three times tables. Three times one, three times two, three times three. I remember they were making fun of me because I said that. Thank you, Naomi. Um, 
Thank you, Naomi. Um, I want to explain the genesis of this book. We, uh, the first book in the series was Surviving Justice, and um, I got the chance to introduce Studs Terkel, the godfather of modern oral history, when he spoke at uh, Berkeley. Um, anybody from Chicago especially knows uh, Studs Terkel, but, uh, uh, and he was 92 years old, still sharp as a tack and still dressed uh, uh, to the nines and wearing red socks, which he always wore. And, um, and after that event in the lobby, um, I met a woman um, who said, well, if you're interested in oral history, I work with the recently uh, exonerated, the wrongfully convicted and exonerated men and women who were convicted and did up to uh, 25 years in prison for crimes that they didn't commit. Uh, we think we know the full story of the exonerated, that life is easy once they get out of prison, um, but there's so much more to tell. And uh, we should do a book of oral histories of the uh, wrongfully convicted. And this was Dr. Lola Volan who uh, co-founded the series. So in that lobby, after a stud circle event, we conceived of this idea of uh, voice of witness. And um, uh, <clears throat> a few months later, I ran into Peter Orner, who's a novelist, who many of you know as a short story writer and, uh, and a novelist, but he uh, was also a lawyer, and he used to be an asylum lawyer. And so we met uh, on Valencia Street in San Francisco, and he started telling me about his life as an asylum lawyer, and he had this experience when he was uh, representing uh, uh, a man from Guatemala who was seeking asylum. He was afraid to go back to Guatemala for fear uh, that he would be persecuted and, and or killed. And um, Peter spent months and months on his case and um, finally went to the judge, San Francisco, presented his case. And um, in a very short hearing, uh, this man's uh, asylum application was denied. And afterward, a fellow colleague of Peter's said, you know, don't worry about it. <clears throat> it's nothing personal. The judge probably just saw too many Guatemalans today. And, um, and when he told me that story, I thought, and we had just started Voice of Witness, and I said, you know, these stories and the story of your client um, need to be told. We should find a way. And so Peter uh, took it upon himself uh, as a professor at San Francisco State to take on uh, underground America, and that's when he met uh, Mimi Locke, who was a student in that class. And I wonder if you can just explain the genesis and uh, working on that book, and then lead into our next guest. Yeah. Um, so I was um, uh, I was part of a team that uh, Peter Orner put together. I'd already graduated, but um, uh, from an MFA in uh, creative writing, and uh, and I was really interested in helping out on this book. Um, really partly because of my own background as a children of immigrants. My parents are from China, immigrated to the UK, but also because oral history was such a big part of my life growing up. I would, um, from the moment I, I mean, from as early as I can remember, I would uh, demand that my uh, mother would tell me stories about life in the village and as a farmer back in Hong Kong, and I'd have the tape recorder on. And and um, and so this was this was a, a form of storytelling that was really meaningful to me. And, uh, and working on the book... Um, I focused on the Chinese immigration beat, and uh, but there were about fourteen or fifteen other folks working on the project, um, just scattered all over the country, interviewing people from from Cameroon, from China, from Mexico, from all over the place. Um, people who had left behind um, loved ones to uh, for, for various reasons, trying to make it in this country, and. Um, 
And that was a life-changing experience for me. My background is in journalism and in fiction writing, but this was and in teaching as well. And um, and this was a form of storytelling and um, uh, and sort of a hybrid uh, form of kind of non-fiction, creative non-fiction and journalism. Sometimes we like to call the work we do journalism with a cup of tea. Um, and um, and but it was also a project that was severely. Uh, lacking in funds and support and manpower. I think there were about 15 of us and three tape recorders. And we'd all be like, no, no, I booked the tape recorder for this interview. And we had to fly all over the country to do these interviews. And we used air miles, slept on friends' couches. And um, and after working on that book, I just thought, oh, this really should be something, you know. And, um, and at the time, I, my visa was about to run out here. But Dave and I chatted and chatted with Loda and said, hey, this should be a non-profit, right? Yeah, it should be a non-profit. And so... Um, so I went to Hong Kong um, and then came back with some kind of like shady visa type arrangement to try and set this up as a non-profit um, around the end of 2008-2009. Um, really good time setting up a non-profit from scratch, you know, financial crisis notwithstanding. Um, and so th- thus began, began the sort of the, the second incarnation of Voice of Witness from a book series to an actual non-profit. So... Um, and then soon after that, we hired someone to help us fundraise. We started an education program. And, um, and now we're sort of on to our 16th book and about 20,000 students a year that we um, serve through this. Oh, thank you. Um, I meant to do that. Uh, Mimi is the... the uh, so I can talk myself uh, Yeah, no. <laughs> but Mimi is the reason that Voice of Witness... Uh, uh, exists and has grown and thrived and um, and uh, so she taught herself how to be an executive director and how to fundraise and how to uh, um, um, grow what was a a fledgling idea into something very real and very uh, powerful so um, anyway I want to salute Mimi for all the work that she's done and um, and, and I was the gardener who came in and and now should we introduce <laughs> our other guest our next guest yes so um so around the time that um, so this book is one of the most dem- after our book on is surviving justice over there yeah so it's surviving justice our book on wrongful conviction and this book there these these two other books are the most demanded by educators um, and we run out of these um, so all, all the time so when we got to a new printing of Underground America we asked Lorena to write the afterword for us because she was such, she's such an incredible person not only did she make this perilous journey from Mexico to the US when she was just six years old and showed such courage and strength um, and um, and resourcefulness but she, and resilience but she also um, she also put herself through college. She uh, became a fierce advocate for farm workers' rights. Her, her mother was a farm worker, and um, and today she is um, she's been married for nine years. She's living in Northern California. She has a five-year-old son, and she runs a hugely successful real estate business with her husband. And um, she's going to be joining us via Skype momentarily if we can get technology to work for us. So um, let's wait for her to get on the screen, then we can give her a warm welcome, okay? So just give me, give me one second. Um, okay. Um, Lorena's story overlaps with uh, the narrative of the dreamers uh, that you know and those that benefited from uh, the DACA legislation under Obama. And 
and that which is uh, under threat right now under our new president. And um, so uh, Lorena has been part of so many of our events over the years. Hi, Lorena. Hi, Lorena. Can you hear us? Everybody say hi. Everyone, welcome. Lorraine, I wondered if you could start from the start and tell us how you first met a Voice of Witness uh, interviewer and what that process was like. And you were uh, going on the record at a time when um, you had reason to be uh, uh, concerned about having your narrative out there. And, uh, and obviously you're, you used a, a pseudonym in the, in the book. And um, anyway, if you can talk about sort of uh, what it was like to tell your story um, when you did. Keep it small, I think. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, a bit, that's, that's a little better. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay, so you were saying that it was scary, but you were tired of being afraid? I'm just tired of hiding. I'm tired of uh, hiding my, my assets and my, uh, everything that I was capable of. So um, when the opportunity presented itself, I had just... Um, finished a very, very life-changing internship in North Carolina that I have worked very, very hard to earn and ever encouraged me to do because I had to fly um, across the country. So having that little bit of courage to do that internship and being so empowered and enlightened and actually hearing um, my voice be heard during that internship Kind of was a little was a little catalyst that um, allowed me to share my story good time, and thank uh, you to where we're at now. Um. Lorena, I, uh, are you guys able to get most of? Okay, it's a little it's a little jumpy, but I think it's it's uh, it's it's okay. Um, Lorena, can you talk about? Um, we we talk a lot uh, as interviewers about how, uh, and I always love the Dave Isay quote from StoryCorps when he says, "Listening is an act of love." We think that, and I agree with that so much. Where the, the process of being heard 
and this many hours, sometimes it's 12 hours or and many weeks or sometimes months off and on together that the interviewers and the narrators talk and and create and um, and uh, and publish this narrative. Can you talk about that part of it being listened to and being heard and digging deeper into your story than maybe you had in telling it to anybody else? We all have a short version of our life story that we tell, but this process requires a, a depth of uh, detail that is, uh, I think. Uh, Unprecedented in other parts of our lives normally. Yeah, I had never shared this much detail with anybody up until that point. Um, I don't think very many people now know that much detail of my life. I'm a very, very private person as it is, especially with this aspect of my life. So it was it was challenging, but. My interviewer was David Hill. He made sure and went to every effort to make me feel comfortable and safe. So once, once he he unlocked that door, I mean the he could. I don't think he could stop me from talking. <laughs> once, uh, once your narr- narrative was published, can you talk about the moment you saw it in print? And saw, I think what we talk about a lot at Voice of Witness is how so many of the narratives have had their narratives uh, distorted, have, have, have had them um, taken from them, they've been labeled, uh, they've been misconstrued. And here we, at, our attempt is to allow the narrators to reclaim their story and to make it just right, to approve, over the, approve of the final text so that when it goes to press, there's no surprises and, and your story is your story again. And can you talk about sort of seeing it in print and the aftermath of the book? It gave me that validity that I have been seeing for such a long time that I actually existed. I now have proof in writing that I exist in this country um, up until up until then. So it, it gave me an identity. It gave me um, just validity and knowing that I am a person and I'm a valuable person, valuable enough to be in a book somewhere. Do you tell us a little bit about, I mean, that was 10 years ago that um, you shared your, your story with us. Can you tell us a little bit about how life is like for you now? I remember when we spoke last week, you said you were about to make a big move. Yeah, yeah, we, we just made a big move. Um, it's funny because as um, I don't know if you guys can see the, the canvas behind me, but it says everything happens for a reason. When you think things are falling apart, they might just be falling into place. And when I was being interviewed by David, um, it was some of the most traumatic times that I had experienced. The place that I was working at was being investigated by um, the Department of Real Estate and the FBI. And I mean, it, it was a huge, huge ordeal. So it was it was a very, very scary time in my life. Um, and I just kept thinking, I, I think I'm just adding what took the fire here by speaking up about my, my story. Uh, but not only did that give me courage and... And I defeated that huge monster that I had built up in my head for such a long time. But um, it taught me 
how to properly run this business that I have that has grown exponentially in the past three years. Um, and it has provided me with the guts that I needed to make the, the moves that I needed to move both personally and professionally and just stop being scared to um, let go of something good go after something better, which is what America is about. Um, thank you. And I think it's inevitable that we have to bring this up to the present moment. Um, we had eight years, I think, uh, where there was progress made with DACA and other legislation, and there was uh, uh, there were certainly setbacks too. But um, the moment that we find ourselves in now, um, and here we are gathered in D.C., uh, uh, not too far from the White House, which is uh, communicating some very uh, scary ideas, and um, and I think ideas that come from. Uh, a clear lack of empathy, and we're going to talk a lot about empathy uh, today. Um, I don't think it's any coincidence that our the current occupant of the White House doesn't read, um, and how that results in his worldview and and that lack of empathy. But can you talk about from your perspective and looking back and sort of and looking back and into the the next generation to young people? Um, I work with young uh, people. Uh, a lot of our nonprofits, A260C and A26 Valencia, and around the country, where this is on the minds of so many young people who are eight, nine, ten years old, who go to bed with fear, who wake up with fear, whose families uh, live with fear every day. And I wonder, from your perspective, can you? Is it um, shocking uh, to find ourselves um, backpedaling so much that we that we have retreated to this level of uh, fear that we thought maybe we were? progressing past. Sorry, I'm going on and on, but I'll let you, you know what I mean. Yeah, um, I, I, I still feel like a, a dreamer. I still identify myself as a, uh, as an immigrant and my heart hurts for every single person that lives with that fear every single day. Um, because I know what it's like to be afraid of the local police department, of a sheriff, of any sort of a government entity, uh, even going to a bank. Um, I remember what that fear was like. Um, I don't, I don't know if that'll ever go away. Um, but I was just having this conversation with um, with somebody that um, is a dreamer and is putting his um, goals on hold and his plans on hold just because he doesn't know what's going to happen. And I feel like that's when the bad people win. That's how they win. I, I don't think that we should let fear dictate our lives. Yes, it is a reality. I'm not trying to bury my head in the sand and pretend like it doesn't exist. But until anything concrete happens, I just say keep moving forward no matter how slowly forward is forward and don't don't let anyone or anything or any potential of anything stop you from your goals and from your dreams your goals are your goals and your dreams are your dreams and you're the only one that can stop them from becoming a reality thank, thank you, you so much. 
Lorena, can you stay for a second? We're going to um, talk to Jennifer, and then we'll swing back to Q&A. Can you stay for that? Sure. Oh, okay. Um, uh, Jennifer, I, I want to um, talk about the book project that you're working on, and, um, and it's centered around food, food sovereignty. And I wonder if you could just sort of define that and why you chose to explore that in Zimbabwe. And uh, anyway. Sure. Uh, food sovereignty is simply the freedom to choose how your food is grown. Okay? Um, the, how it's made. It is a product in this country, isn't it? So um, as we, as, as IDEX, we're an organization that's worked for 30 years um, with grassroots leaders around the world working on the forefront of food sovereignty, climate justice, and alternative economies. And what we find, especially in this moment, is that people in the global south have so much to teach us, truthfully. Um, the things that my grandmother knew that I have lost isn't lost. It still exists. It's still around. So how do we reclaim that? Um, we're hoping that this book can really inspire all of us, but I'll talk a little bit about, more about that you know, as we go on, I'm sure. Um, we also know that food sovereignty is so important right now because in the industrial food system has created such a burden on our environment and is such a contributor to climate change um, that we've got to figure out how to feed ourselves and not hurt the planet. We, we absolutely know we have to do that. And so we need creative solutions. We've got to figure out how to transform these food systems. And, and, and the other thing for me, that why is food sovereignty is so important in this moment, is that we know from communities of color in this country, we know from people in the global south, food is resistance. It fuels us on a deep level, spiritually, emotionally, um, and physically. So it's an important time to look at this topic, I think. And are there stories that you, in your work, that you started with, like, oh, stories that you knew? Because a lot of times these books, typically the editors of the books are, are, are uh, individuals who have worked in the field that the book is, uh, is covering, whether or not um, in the case of uh, Inside This Place, Not Of It, which is a book of uh, narratives from women's prisons in the U.S., um, one editor had been a... a, a uh, public defender, and the other editor had worked with uh, Justice Now, a uh, uh, prison reform organization. Or in, in Alia Malek uh, had been a Department of Justice lawyer and then had uh, written a book about uh, Arab American history uh, in this country. And um, can you, but everybody starts with a few stories. Oh, I wish I, this story needs to be told. People would understand so much more if they knew it. Were there stories in your mind that you started mm -hmm. with? Absolutely. Um, you know, I thought about this. I, as you asked that question, I, I thought about a lot of people. I, and I thought about, I, but I also thought about things that they were doing. And what we also find in our sector, our human rights, global development sector, is we forget the story too, right? So we get into the intervention or the strategy, and we forget that there's humans at it. So my mind went to strategy first, I'll confess. But then it went to um, uh, a partner that is coming uh, actually to San Francisco next week to join us. Uh, her name is Elizabeth Mpufo. She is the leader of La Via Campesina, as well as the Zimbabwe Organic uh, Smallholder Organic Farmers Forum. You would not know her name, probably. If anyone has heard of her, please, 
leads. No? Okay. Uh, she leads a 200 million person movement, a global movement of peasant farmers. Where is her story, right? So this is a, a moment that we can let her tell us about what that means for her, who herself is a day-to-day farmer, right, and, and an activist. And how, how, what did she learn? What, what in, in, in her life made her realize, I'm going to fight to protect our ancestral knowledge, and I'm going to push up against um, multinational companies that would sell me some seeds that I know how to save already, right? Um, I thought about uh, a, a youth group outside of Cape Town, South Africa, who's engaged in guerrilla gardening. So land being such a, tif- uh, a tif- uh, difficult issue there, these youth, which are the future, are, are taking over plots of land and planting gardens, right? Resistance. So these are great stories. I'm really excited to, to feature them in the book. We have a new book, uh, that, and this, of course, is of interest uh, to Lorena, too. Uh, Chasing the Harvest is uh, uh, just about at press right now, and that's about uh, um, farm workers, uh, migrant workers in uh, the U.S. And, uh, and, um, and there's a lot of overlapping narratives and a lot of overlapping themes. And um, can you talk about how you chose... Um, Zimbabwe and, and South Africa to focus on, and what is common to uh, uh, the lives of migrant workers and farm workers here in the U.S., and what's very different there? Hmm. What a good question. Thank you. <laughs> oh. I got a bunch of good ones. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, I think what we'll find in common as, as we embark upon this is really about the changing narrative, you know. The, the fact that the narratives that are painted are just wrong. So I think that that will be a, a real um, moment of understanding. You know, th- there's a there's an interest in keeping people powerless and poor and desperate and an o- object of charity and pity. Um, and I think people who especially are connected to the earth um, have a sense of fortitude that um, us city dwellers, blue state, blue st- I'm a blue stater now. Um, that ingenuity, that that deep knowledge, um, I think we'll understand about how people are hanging on to that and claiming that in the midst of, of many forces coming at them. I'm excited to see that be a theme. Um, we chose Zimbabwe and South Africa because, um, truthfully, so our organization gives grants, and one of the ways that we give grants is with trust, something called general operating support any of you who run nonprofits, it is so hard to get it means your funder has to trust you to do with what the money that you think you can do um we part of the way that we fund grassroots movements in the global south is that way so we have to get our own money to be that way too and we have a the hardest time doing that in on for africa partners I'll just leave that there. <laughs> um, sorry to interrupt. Lorena, um, unfortunately, has to go. So can you just give one great big round of applause to her? Thank you for joining us. Just very um, discreetly saying, I'm sorry. Thank you so much for letting me on.
Thank you so much for joining us. You take care. Thank you, Lorena. Um, we know each other via Skype. Uh, uh, Lorena has been kind enough to jump in on many panels over the years. Um, and also, notably, uh, if you read her narrative, which I, I urge you to do, she uh, worked with uh, farm workers in North Carolina. She was from California, but she went to North Carolina for an internship and, and, uh, and became an activist uh, uh, advocating for the rights of uh, farm workers. In California, farm workers uh, typically have uh, uh, due in large part to the work of Cesar Chavez and everybody uh, associated with him have more rights and uh, and there are more regulations and protections than there are in some states like North Carolina, um, especially back when Lorena was volunteering there. Um, I want to uh, uh, talk about, um, Jennifer, oral history. How did you choose this as a vehicle mm -hmm. to get to sort of, you, you know, the work that you guys do is, is on the ground? And uh, why is oral history a necessary plank of that? And uh, was it something that... Uh, all the rest of your organization endorsed right away, or is there skepticism about storytelling as a as a necessary use of time and funds? Uh, we love storytelling. Sharon Bridgeforth, playwright and performer, who our first performer is our artist in residence at IDEX. Um, so we really invest in that as our as an organizational strategy. Um, I think that we continue to grapple with how to frame stories and how who is telling whose story is a big question for us and, and one that we're happy to grapple with with voice of witness um, yeah I think it's it's oral history matters to us because that person can own their story the whole way and that that really is important to us and frankly we're activists we like to yell and say should a lot. So how do we, and we know that in this polarized <laughs> environment that we're now part of, that it's hard to argue with an oral history, isn't it? Yeah. And it, and it has all that heart and all that um, narrative arc that we love too. So it, it, it's powerful in many ways and we're looking forward to, to that part of it too. Well, and then, you know, I'll, I'll say one of the things that we sought from the beginning and you're talking about, we're talking about an issue that this book is going to be based around, which is food sovereignty. But in every case, the first thing that the interviewers sit down and ask is, talk, tell me about your childhood, tell me about your family. And that's the first hours. I mean, first of all, the narrators are allowed to direct the conversation anywhere it goes. The narratives end up being mostly chronological, but they are the drivers of the interview process. Anytime they want to stop, they stop. If they want to discontinue the process altogether, they do. If after their narrative is complete and edited and even uh, printed, they can still take it back. They have control over their identity as it's presented in the book. They can use a pseudonym. We In Underground America, all the narrators, were, uh, we use pseudonyms and even disguise their location for fear of, uh, of uh, them ending up on a list. And, um, and we even had a case in our, our book about South Sudan, um, Out of Exile, where one of the narrators, after the book was at press and printed, felt that even though her identity was disguised, it might be discerned by authorities in Khartoum uh, who wished her family ill. So we pulped all of those books and went back to press without her narrative in it. 
Um, the idea is to give the narrators a safe space where they feel safe during the entire process and afterward, too. And the relationships don't end when the book's published. Obviously, we've known Lorena forever. Uh, I still stay in touch with um, uh, uh, narrators from uh, Surviving Justice, um, and I know that Peter has... Peter Orner has had a very close ongoing relationship with many of his narrators and as a lawyer. Um, Peter is finishing a book um, uh, 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 called Lavel uh, that's about Haiti after the earthquake, and it's been five years in the making. And um, during that time, he's gone back to Haiti um, countless times to get updates from his narrators and make sure that everybody... uh, uh, is doing well, and his advocacy for them definitely extends beyond the page for sure. And after, you know, um, the hurricane there too happened, and many of the narrators uh, were displaced, and so he becomes intimately involved in their lives. So it's a relationship that it transcends journalism and oral history and and anything that goes toward furthering their humanity and I think taking empathy to the next step is okay, uh, is advocated and. Uh, uh, and as part of the process. Um. And I think this, I mean, and, you know, what we've been talking about um, at the root of empathy and when you're facilitating someone else's story, I think what, we, uh, what we've really been talking about is um, honouring someone's story, taking responsibility for it. But also, um, but also we think a lot about uh, when we're teaching oral history um, and we went through a two-day training with uh, the, the core staff of IDEX in preparation for this, um, this project, uh, we really talk about power dynamics and equity. So the minute you sit down with someone... Can you just uh, show if your hands anyone who's ever conducted an interview before or been interviewed? Okay, a good number. Um, the minute you, you sit down with someone and you're the person putting down the tape recorder and you're asking the questions, there's immediately a power dynamic, right? So to make someone feel at ease, to make someone feel like they're controlling the situation, there are all these little concrete things you can do to like, just flatten that that imbalance a little bit um, and we go into great depth in our methodology to sort of address these issues and, and um and I, I think it's fair to say most of us coming to a conference like this, we're coming from a place of privilege, right? So, um, and and when, once we're, I think that when we're going into a, a project or an issue like, um, uh, you know, like the violence in Zimbabwe or uh, or post nine eleven Islamophobia or um, uh, collecting stories of undocumented immigrants, we we want to go in with this idea not that we are saving anyone or you know, giving them a, a voice that they didn't have before, but treating them as teachers. Uh, what can we learn from from these people who are agreeing to sit down and share their story with us? So um, th- this is why we're so staunch, uh, such staunch advocates of oral history as a legitimate form of history, because um, up against uh, scholarly works or analytical works, it really gives you something that you didn't, that you might not otherwise get, all the nuances and shades and textures, and also um, some sort of con- conflicting opinions around the same issue. Um, and um, and I think that's sort of at the root of what um, uh, Jennifer and Idex's project is, is treating these... Um, uh, the, these narrators in the farmers, uh, movement leaders in Zimbabwe and South Africa as, as people who have actually found solutions to uh, 
to the climate crisis, right? Um, can you speak a little bit more about that? Yeah, exactly. I, I think uh, small-scale farmers, as the scientific research on their methods, which are um, often maligned as being unscalable and um, not innovative, right? They're, they're not all about getting the maximum yield of everything, right? So what we're finding, though, is that as the scientific knowledge gets validated that they have um, and the solutions are culturally relevant, what I'm hoping is that as we learn about their stories and how that small scale, supposedly small-scale intervention actually allows people to stay secure and, and, and well, what, what I hope we take from it is our own actionable ideas about how we take more control of our food system here in the U.S. So I think it's it's what will be interesting about this volume and what we're really excited about is that global to local connection that will be very palpable, hopefully. Okay. Um, I'm looking at the time and realizing we have about 12 minutes um, uh, and to 5.45. So we wanted to hear from you. And it, whether you have a question or whether if you've taught um, oral history and you have an anecdote or story that you want to t tell, um, now's the time. And uh, uh, Or if you uh, sort of have a question about how you might apply the, these, uh, this methodology in your own classroom, yeah. Graduate students with 10 Haitian um, immigrants. And I had the uh, Haitian immigrants, each one, they were, we called them nose on me, our friends, and each one um, had a week devoted to them where they had, it was a once a week, three hour course, and they told their story for three hours, and the 18 students were to transcribe it, and I used the workbook, and I went over the workbook with the students, they transcribed the stories, and then they would choose. So, each of the 18 students transcribed the 10 stories. Mm. Then they would choose which story they wanted to be their project. They would meet one-on-one -on -one with the immigrant, and they would write the oral narrative. I have to say, they were breathtaking. Mm. That's a great project. Yeah. Well done, how you did it. Um, yeah. and, and she's referring to the power of story, which is our uh, our, our our classroom accompanying you know book that sort of talks about how to teach uh oral history in the classroom and how to teach the different narratives. Um, you can Cliff, download that free on, from our website. Cliff Mayotte is the educational director at Voice of Witness, and he's, yeah, he's amazing. Right. And so if you call up Voice of Witness or visit in San Francisco, you'll get Cliff. Mm. Um, he's there, cliff at voiceofwitness.org. He'll love that I just gave out his email address. Um, but no, he is, he, yeah, he is. He's just tireless and um, uh, and an amazing practitioner of oral history himself, and um, did started with community-based oral history, having high school students tell and solicit and listen to the stories of their neighborhood. Because so often in San Francisco, the students are from one part of town and they're going to school 45 minutes away on the other part of town. They don't know the neighborhood that, that they're uh, living in that, that well and the, and the residents of that neighborhood. So he started there, um, you know, teaching. Yeah. Very hyper-local oral, oral history, but the project that you just described, it must be transformative for everybody on every side, including the narrators, to be heard. Uh, what is, so I need to create a writing trip to Haiti every year. Yeah. So this was the piece that was missing, because I had 
met the um, American, you know, Haitian Americans. Yeah. And my students went, who went with me on the trip hadn't met them either. So mm. this was such an yeah. Mm. Well, and you sure. had the benefit of the narrators being in person and having that mm. much time for everybody. There's probably a very close-knit group. When we did Surviving Justice, all of these exonerees, we brought about 11 of them all to Berkeley, and we had a weekend together. And we let them just talk to each other. And we mm. sat on the outside and listened, because we didn't know. There are questions that we ask of somebody, and then when you let the narrators exchange their own questions because they have a, a more mm -hmm. inside knowledge, that was mind-blowing. So we printed just the transcript of that in the back mm -hmm. of the book because mm -hmm. it was very different than the questions that we would have thought to ask. But that group, seeing everybody in person, it was crying, hugs. I mean, just nobody wanted to leave. Nobody had ever been sort of... Uh, and, and that's with the students that were helping... Uh, this was uh, Berkeley students that helped with this book. Um, so having the benefit of, of narrators in person, and I know the telling room knows this very well, um, and that community and how that can tighten the fabric, um, that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Yes, and the way back. I just want to say while we're on the subject, thank you so much, Harriet, for sharing that. And if you email Cliff dot mayor at voiceofwitness.org and tell him about this project, you'll just make his day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm showing you on our website, there's a bunch of free curricular resources, um, all, like so many age groups, and, um, and you can basically search curricula by, uh, by book or by topics of activism, borders and boundaries, civil rights and security, criminal justice, exile and displacement, and it's all free. Um, and so that's, that's why we're a non-profit because we don't make any money from, from what we do we're not in it for the money believe me um, uh, you want to yell from the way back yeah. Good questions. Um, yeah, we have everything. We have the interviews. Um, we have not made... Uh, it could be uh, more high-tech, I think. Um, it, because a lot of the, the interviews are all recorded, so we have all the recordings, but um, they've been done in different ways. Some uh, cassette tape, some micro-cassette, a lot of digital. Um, and it depends on, uh, and on the requirements in... Uh, crazy story, and this is why the story of uh, women in prison is so compelling and uh, outrage-provoking. In, in the U.S., most of the prisons won't, wouldn't let our interviewers in unless they had a certain type of tape recorder. From, MP3 they, player, right? Obsolete. Yeah, it was, yeah. Uh, no, no, yeah. it was a micro-disc uh, player. Oh, that no. you can't, MD we, player, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. We had to buy them on, on uh, eBay. There are like 10 yeah. still in existence, yeah. but they haven't changed the regulations since 1983. Yeah. But access to women's prisons in the U.S. is unbelievable. It, mm. is, uh, it is outrageous. Mm. It is uh, unconscionable. And it's, we did that book right after we did uh, the book in uh, South Sudan, and most of those interviews were conducted in refugee camps outside of Khartoum. That book was infinitely easier to do, mm -hmm. and, and access was far easier to get than women's prisons yeah. in the U.S. Yeah. Um, we had to do a lot of sly stuff, sneak people in, get uh, a lot of stuff had to be done via mm -hmm. the mail. Um, In-person interviews were exceedingly difficult. Mm -hmm. But um, So we have this archive. It is not uh, 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 
it is a well uh, we yeah. have a, well the, the current iteration of the archive is that because of I mean technically it's a sealed archive because um, as Dave mentioned before because most of the people who share their stories with us they there's a reason why they're sharing this story it's a story of human rights abuse and so um, many are using um, pseudonyms many have had the details of their original story changed for uh, safety purposes and so uh, so we do keep an archive our managing editor Luke Gowie is um, at the back there and he not only does he um, edit um, and uh, help us produce the books in the series, but he also has been helping us organize our hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of interview material from over the past few years. So, um, so it is it's a work in progress, but also we can't really reveal it to the public for those reasons. We're working on um, uh, various a dream possibilities, of ours, maybe with a, a university yeah, or university, somebody that yeah. has would yeah. uh, have the resources to do this right. Yeah. Um, Voice of Witness is still very, very small, um, mm -hmm. so it is a dream, and it will, I think, happen at some point uh, mm -hmm. with the existing staff. We can only dream, but someday. Yeah. If anyone wants to volunteer any um, archiving, yeah, time, there are archivists there. Yes, they want archivists, to. This yeah. is how it works with nonprofits: yeah. you volunteer, and you're going to get roped in. Yeah. Are there any other thoughts? Anybody else who teaches? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, in the case of this project, it was really a conversation, right? Uh, we were aware of each other's work. Um, we had Zimbabwe in common. IDEX's work in Zimbabwe. When we put this book out, they sponsored an event. We lived where our offices were down the road from each other. Um, the executive director of um, IDEX, Vinnie Bansali, who unfortunately couldn't join us today, um, she, she and I are friends. She used to serve on our board. And we used when, to share communications managers. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, um, and so sometimes it's just knowing, knowing um, each other's work and then just seeing, oh, this is a sweet spot here. That's like, oh, we should definitely partner on that. So it's sometimes a matter of timing. Sometimes and, it's just like and then every, in the coffee shop. Yeah, yeah. That's, it used to be less formal. Now there is a formal application process. Um, a proposal process that's fairly elaborate, and then the board has to examine uh, that proposal and see if it's viable, see if it's something that needs to be uh, expressed through oral history and that we can do it uniquely well and that we can find funding for it. Um, and then sometimes we will think, like after, uh, for Patriot Acts, you know, this was uh, in the mid-2000s under Bush, and there was a... Uh, we felt like we needed uh, a, a book to address, you know, Islamophobia in the U.S. and human rights abuses here uh, directed to Arab Muslim Americans. And so I had read uh, Ali Malek's book, A Country Called America, about the history of uh, Arabs in America. And I asked her if she would do it, and she said yes. So sometimes we match up an idea with the right yeah. editor. Um, but more often now, the proposals come to yeah. us and we have, uh, we feel really fortunate that there's a lot of great proposals to choose so from. So Luke, Luke uh, Gowie, our managing editor at the back, he, he vets all the proposals that come in and um, helps us winnow them down, the ones that have potential. He helps to sort of um, work, with the, work with the proposal writer to strengthen them. But we're, really what we look for is sort of pretty kind of broad but narrow at the same time. We're looking for ideas that, uh, book ideas that address contemporary and underreported um, uh, issues 
um, that are affecting people in the U.S. and around the world. And the reason why we have this U.S. and international focus is because um, the two aren't exclusive. And I think there's this growing... Uh, I think there's always been this danger of this sort of sense of, you know, just inward-looking, isolationist sort of perspective. But now more than ever, when things are kind of falling down around us um, in a very sort of um, visceral sense, it's easy to just focus, or, and understandable to just focus on things like in our immediate vicinity, but we really can't lose sight of how um, what happens here in the U.S. Uh, has um, huge ripples around the world and always has done. So that's sort of... A, long answer to your question. Mm. <laughs> um, I think we have time Sorry. for one, yeah, two Yeah, here in the front. So I've been uh, working on a book that aims to tell the story. Sure. <laughs> I've been working on a book that aims to tell the stories of uh, homeless individuals in Orlando, and one of the problems I've been having is getting the interviewing to... Uh, they're, they're withholding, oftentimes, with the information a lot of them that I've talked to. And you've mentioned comfort and safety being a huge role in interviewing, uh, also the concrete um, ways that you work that into your methodology. I was wondering if you could share some of those techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, I, I don't know if you've already done this, but it's, uh, the first sentence I say whenever I do an interview, and I, uh, for voice of witnesses, you control this. We're not printing anything without your permission. And if that's the first sentence, most of the hesitation will go away if it's like, okay, I'm not going to have this snatched. It's not going to be a hit and run. Um, and I think that most, uh, and I'm you know, coming from the field of journalism myself, like sometimes you don't have that opportunity to check and all that stuff. And so news is news, and um, the methodology is different. With this, if you want that novelistic level of detail and then if you want to avoid re-traumatization and make sure that this person doesn't feel exploited, then that first sentence, you, you control it and you always will, um, usually will put people at, at ease. Um, and then I think that the relationship has to feel non-journalistic in a way. I mean, it is a formal process. You're doing an interview, but it isn't this, like maybe described as typical power dynamic where I represent this newspaper and I'm going to take a few quotes and you're going to see them tomorrow and they're going to be permanent and that's that. And um, so I think if you can ease into that process, especially with a very vulnerable community that you're talking about who has, you know, had probably countless run-ins with powerful entities, whether it's the police or whatever, who uh, uh, in a a group of people that is uh, always misunderstood and usually maligned, I think that you're dealing with uh, a group that needs to be heard, and so it's a very worthy project, and and it requires exceedingly careful uh, um, uh, process, I think, especially with if they don't have exposure to students, students are very young sometimes. That you, So when we worked with, uh, for Surviving Justice, it was uh, students at the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism, and they, some of whom were 22, very young. And um, so we did months and months of training, actually, before they were interviewed anybody because we wanted to make sure, you know, um, that everybody got it right, you know, because you can... It can be, uh, especially the re-traumatization risk. But I hope, um, but also maybe if you bring people into a safe space, Mm -hmm. food, you know, um, 
just make it a home, you know, mm-hmm. make it not necessarily a formal thing with a tape recorder in someone's face, but let's get together first. You can establish a relationship over days and weeks mm-hmm. that creates a comfort level, and then you can get started. Yeah. Does Ashley, that make sense? who's um, a, a narrator in Inside This Place, she talks, um, she talks about how um, this was a person who gave birth in prison. She was shackled during childbirth whilst she was in prison. And she has spoken um, several times about her first experience of being interviewed by one of our uh, staff members, Claire Kiefer. And she said that the first thing that she did was first um, Claire went to her home because Ashley requested it. She brought donuts and coffee. She spent the first half hour just like playing with Ashley's little kids. And, um, and um, so by the time... And they'd only spoken on the phone once or twice before then. And by the time they actually started talking... Um, Ashley felt like she she really could see this person as another human being, not just as someone who wanted to get something. So it doesn't yeah. it doesn't feel transactional, and um, and also a really crucial thing is to not to start straight away with the heavy stuff. You know, just um, starting with some um, kind of safe, neutral questions. And um, but this is an opportunity for me to plug <laughs> our training. Um, we do a we do an annual training every summer um, called Amplifying Unheard Voices. Um, which is run by our fantastic education team. So it's in the Bay Area for four days. It's sliding scale, so you can pay like from nothing to you know full scale, and uh, it really gets into the nuts and bolts of the kind of questions that you're asking. Really important questions, and the kind of people who come to these trainings are high school teachers, they're journalists, they're uh, medical doctors, they're anybody who's interested in using empathy um, and storytelling in their work. And, um, and I also want to um, encourage you to check out the free... So they're here for you to take. Um, Luke is at the back. Uh, we're we're going to try and get rid of all these books today. Uh, the, the convention hall is closed right now, but if you're interested, if you haven't picked up a Voice Witness book yet, then Luke's, Luke will be um, selling some of these books here. I'd really encourage you to check out the free curricula on our website and... Do absolutely check out IDEX, um, IDEX.org. They're an amazing organization. Um, they do so much with so little. And, um, uh, and also they're in the process of changing their name to Thousand Currents. So um, I think this is a good place to... Well, I'd, and, and, and for, you guys have such power right now. And obviously uh, to, to uh, engender a culture of listening and empathy. And I know that... Uh, 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 a lot of the students in your programs are in, at our centers, 826 centers, we teach self-expression, and that is so important, and to give students a voice parallel to it, and I think just as necessary as in this moment is the uh, power of looking outside oneself mm-hmm. um, to try to put oneself in another's skin, to listen uh, uh, as a way to educate oneself fully and to complicate your thinking about uh, your fellow humans and uh, the issues that uh, uh, surround them and our time. So uh, I hope that uh, we'll be here talking your ear off as long as you want until we get kicked out. But this is something that we're very passionate about, especially in this moment. It's now more urgent than ever. This act of listening, this act of love, this act of, uh, of truly caring enough about our fellow humans to try to understand them. So um, I want to thank Jennifer for being here. And I want to publicly thank Mimi for making Voice of Witness all that it is. And thank you all for coming. And I want to thank Dave for...
Thank you for listening to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please feel free to visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.